just pray together. Father God, we, we just thank you for your word. Um, not, does, not only does it teach us to be wise, making wise simple, but it teaches us how to love you. Um, and you ask us uh, to love you with all our heart, our minds, our strength and our mind. Uh, and I pray, Holy Spirit, today that that will happen. Uh, your word will transform us uh, through our brother Garpo. Anoint him. Let us depart from this place uh, different because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture text is um, taken from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Please follow with me as we read from the slides. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. In those days when a number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch are convert to Judaism. Verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God increased. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Sorry, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I recall the day I got married. My wife is here so I can speak freely about this. 7 September 1997, the day of our wedding dinner. 
What made it even more memorable was that 7 September 1997, Singapore time, was also the day of Princess Diana's funeral. All pomp and pageantry, but solemn and dignified. The nation of Britain was in mourning for her favourite daughter, the stunningly beautiful Princess, or sorry, the stunningly beautiful Diana Spencer, who became the Princess of Wales and who married a not-so-charming Prince Charles. She died at the young age of 36. As part of the memorial service, those of you who followed the procession on, on TV, it was screened here live, I think, one of Britain's most famous sons, Elton John, famous before One Direction, sang a eulogy reworked from a song he made immensely popular years ago. And you know which song I'm talking about, Candle in the Wind. And this song was about Marilyn Monroe, the famous sex symbol, who died of a drug overdose, also at the age of 36. And in many ways, the life of Stephen, the main character in Acts chapter 6 and 7, was like that. A candle that burned brightly, illuminating the lives he touched, but which was snuffed out quickly when the wind grew too strong. But unlike Diana Spencer and Marilyn Monroe, Stephen's testimony still lives on and inspires us today. Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we read a while ago, introduced Stephen as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 6, verse 8, described him as a man full of God's grace and power. And from then on, the rest of chapter 6 and the whole of chapter 7 are devoted to his conflict with the Jews, a conflict that finally led to his death. Later on in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, Paul addressed the crowd in Jerusalem and refers to Stephen as a martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R. And he was the first martyr of the Christian church. The word martyr comes from the Greek word martus, which means to bear witness. But in the English language, martyr also means someone who dies for his or her beliefs. And one of the early church fathers in the second century, a guy called Tertullian, famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As Dr. Raj last week also mentioned, in the context of the book of Acts, Stephen's martyrdom was the catalyst for the missionary expansion of the church and fulfilled the instructions of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that his disciples will bear witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, when all is said and done, the story of Stephen the martyr is a story of faithfulness. And it's a story that we need to hear and to take to heart in this day and age when faithlessness, not faithfulness, faithlessness is the default setting, whether in marriage, in friendships, in our working life, and especially in our spiritual lives. And in the life of Stephen, we see a man who is faithful in his service. Let's review the background of what happened in Acts chapter 6. 
The church in Jerusalem was growing rapidly. Among the new believers were, were a group of elderly Greek-speaking Jewish widows who returned from the many lands where they were scattered to end their days in Jerusalem. They were penniless, unable to work, and had to receive financial help. And for some reason, tensions developed between the Greek and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And the Greek-speaking Jews felt unjustly treated by the Hebrew-speaking Jews in the distribution of handouts to these poor widows. And the matter was brought to the attention of the apostles, and after prayer, they appointed a team of seven, all with non-Jewish names, in order to serve tables. And this phrase, to serve tables, refers to the task of financial management and administration. And it was the job of these seven to be administrators, a role that included resolving the disputes between the Jewish and the Greek-speaking segments of the church. And Stephen was one of these seven. We commonly call these seven men deacons because the Greek word diakonos and diakonio, sorry, diakonio, used in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, means to serve. It means to serve. And these seven men were servants of the church, men whose administrative duties made it possible for the apostles to carry on their ministry of prayer and the preaching of God's word. And Stephen, as you can see from the text, was a gifted and powerful preacher. He never stopped his preaching. And in fact, it was because of his powerful preaching that he was persecuted by the Jews. Yet, his primary role in the church, in the early church, was one of service and general administration. So he and the other six must have done a good job because we no longer hear about the same disputes between the Greek and Hebrew-speaking Christians surfacing again. And that teaches us the importance of faithfulness, faithfulness in all things, whether it is the small things of serving tables and general administration or in the big things of spirit-inspired preaching and the doing of signs and wonders, miracles. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 20, you remember Jesus taught a parable about man who went away on a long journey. And before he left, he appointed three of his servants to be his asset managers. This guy believed in portfolio diversification, and so he allocated his funds among these three managers to invest. And when the boss returned from his trip, he rewarded two of his servants who invested the money and earned abnormally high returns, basically doubled the money. But the boss rebuked and punished the third servant who merely hid the money allotted to him and failed to invest it properly. And this was what the man said to his two, to his two star asset managers. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. My son is crazy about this movie, Karate Kid. This is the third version, I think. And this version has Jackie Chan. And this version stars Jaden Smith as the young Dre Parker. Dre was roughed up by some bullies in Beijing where his mother and him were, were sent for his mom's work assignment. But Dre was rescued by Jackie Chan's character, a handyman named Mr. Han. 
And Dre pleaded with Mr. Han to teach him Kung Fu. And initially, Mr. Han refused, but then he finally gave in after some persuasion. The training, however, the Kung Fu training, however, was not what Dre Parker expected. And on his first lesson, Mr. Han tells Dre to take off his jacket, hang it up, take it down, put it on again. Then he tells Dre to take off his jacket, hang it up, take it down, put it on. And again, and again, and again, for like a million times. Dre does not understand, and he gets very frustrated with this repetition and thinks that this, this cannot be real Kung Fu, right? Where are the moves? Until one day when Mr. Han stages a mock attack on Dre, and then Dre responds instinctively with moves that drew upon his repeated actions of taking off a jacket, hanging it up, putting it down, putting it on. And then he understands that the endless and the mindless little task of taking off his jacket, hanging his jacket, taking it down, putting it on, and repeated ad infinitum is the foundation upon which he can master real Kung Fu. If you believe it, lah. <laughs> stretching it a bit, stretching this illustration a bit, the spiritual implications of this story are quite obvious. If we cannot be faithful in the small things, the repetitive things, the mundane things of everyday life, how can we be faithful in serving God in the big things. Someone described our commitment or our consecration as taking a $10,000 note, laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all to you. Send me to the farthest end of China among some unreached people group so that I can preach the gospel and win souls for your kingdom. But the reality is that for most of us, at least, the Lord does not send us into the farthest end of China, sends us to the bank. And He, has, he will have us to change this $10,000 note into $10,001 bills. And we carry 10,000 of these $1 bills and we go through our Christian lives putting out $1 here, $5 there, tearing our parking coupons without cheating, getting to church on time, showing love to our neighbours, having our daily quiet time, listening to our spouse, tithing faithfully, showing love to our family members, honouring our word, and yes, even being courteous to the Citibank guy at Orchard Road MRT station who tries to sell you a credit card. Relatively speaking, it would be quite easy to go out in a flash of glory. Like they say in Chinese, hong hong lie lie. But it's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And this is what we are called to do. To be faithful in our service, big or small. Stephen was also faithful in his stand. Now, how did Stephen get into trouble? 
Well, Acts chapter 6, verse 8 tells us that Stephen performed great signs and wonders among the people. And for some reason, people got upset. And in those days, Jews from many nations lived in Jerusalem in their own quarters. And some of these groups had their own synagogues or places of worship. And one such group was called the freedmen, who were actually descendants of Jewish slaves, but who had won their freedom from the Roman Empire. And the members of this synagogue came from three provinces, North Africa, the western portion of what is today modern Turkey, and a place called Cilicia. And the city of Tarsus was located in this last province of Cilicia. And it was possible that Paul, or Saul as he was then called, who came from Tarsus, heard Stephen in the synagogue in Tarsus, somewhere in Cilicia, and may even have sparred with him in open debate. Whatever it was, the synagogue of the freedmen opposed Stephen. But nobody could match up to his wisdom and his power. And the only thing they could do was to destroy him. So they hatched a wicked plot. They hired false witnesses and stirred up the people who accused him of attacking the law of Moses and the temple. Charges that were tantamount to blasphemy and therefore punishable by death if found guilty. So Stephen was forced to face trial for offences he never committed. And before the religious council, the Sanhedrin, he mounted a defense. Or in Greek, the word is apologia, from where you come the word, from where you get the word apology. That you can read from Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 53. It's a very long speech. And as you read it, you may be wondering what exactly was Stephen trying to do in giving a history lesson to a bunch of people who were putting him on trial. And this bunch of people were men of learning were men who were steeped in the traditions of the elders of Israel, the teachers of the law. Well, we can, we can dissect this, this long address of Stephen, this apology or this defense of Stephen into three parts, corresponding to the three phases in biblical history. First one is the period of the patriarchs, the ancestors. And Stephen begins his speech with the words, the God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Stephen was saying, you religious rulers, you think Moses is so important? Well, guys, get a load of this. It's not Moses. It's not the temple. It's not even Abraham. It's God, the God of glory. And before Abraham even set one foot in Israel, while he was still in Mesopotamia as a heathen, the God of glory appeared to him. And eventually, when God gave Abraham the promise of descendants as numerous as the stars and as the sand of the seashore, God also said that his promised descendants will spend 400 years in bondage. Wow. Not much of a happy promise, is that? And so the nightmare began when Joseph was sold by his jealous brothers into slavery in Egypt. There he suffered greatly. But as Stephen told his audience, God was with him. Acts chapter 7, verse 9. God was with Joseph. No Moses yet, no temple yet, but God was with him as God was with Abraham. 
And the next stage of God's dealings with Israel occurred during the time of Moses. Now, Moses was born to Jewish parents, we know about that. But he was brought up by an Egyptian princess. And once Moses killed an Egyptian soldier for abusing one of the Hebrew slaves, but when he later saw two Hebrews fighting among themselves and tried to stop them, one of them rebuked him and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? So Moses was rejected by his own people. And the God of glory, the same God who appeared to Abraham, also appeared to Moses in the wilderness and appointed Moses and his brother Aaron to be the deliverer of Israel. But even after Moses delivered the Jews from the slavery, as you read in Acts chapter 7, verses 37 to 41, Israel still rejected him. So rejected by his people before God appeared to him in the wilderness, rejected again by his people after he delivered them from slavery. You religious rulers, Stephen was saying, this is the attitude, this is your attitude towards the Moses you hold in such high regard. And in the same way as your ancestors rejected Moses, you people also rejected Jesus, who, like Moses, was to be the saviour of his people. And the third period was the period after Moses. By the time of David, King David, Israel was already well settled in the land, and religion had become institutionalized, and the tabernacle built during Moses' time gave way to Solomon's temple. The temple was the magnificent symbol of God's presence. But as Stephen reminded his audience, quoting Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, God does not dwell in physical buildings. Heaven is his throne, and earth is his footstool. Almighty God cannot be confined in a single place. And in fact, having a physical and very grand temple did nothing, did nothing to prevent the Jews from rejecting God and his prophets and turning to idolatry. So, you see the drift of Stephen's speech? It's lengthy, but if you start dissecting it, you realize that he was trying to drive at a few things. You see, the Jews accused Stephen of denigrating the law of Moses and the temple, where God's holy presence was believed to dwell. But Stephen dismissed those two charges against him. And pointing back to beyond Moses, beyond the temple, to God himself, Stephen's argument was twofold. Number one, throughout history, God raised men and women, people like Joseph, Moses, Joshua, the prophets, to deliver his people. But his people, the Jews, repeatedly rejected them and chose to disobey God. And in the same way, they rejected the Messiah, Jesus. Secondly, the Jews had the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple which Solomon built. But the physical symbol of God's presence did not stop them from falling into idolatry. And the temple was never intended to be a permanent institution anyway. God's presence was with Abraham, Joseph, and Moses even when there was no tabernacle and no temple. The climax of Stephen's speech can be found in these verses on the slide, Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. And Stephen describes the Jewish leaders as being uncircumcised in heart and stiff-necked 
always resisting the Holy Spirit. And these were people who, who were so proud of circumcision because it was an outward sign of God's favor upon the nation of Israel. And the term stiff-necked, if you look back at the Old Testament, was used almost 20 times in the Bible to describe Israel. 20 times. And now Stephen uses the same word, stiff-necked, to rebuke the Jewish leaders. You claim Moses as your authority. Guys, you are hypocrites. You are self-deluded. You are actually enemies of Moses. Worse still, in the same way as your ancestors rejected Moses, you have rejected the Messiah, one much greater than Moses, and you have become betrayers and murderers of the Holy One of Israel. Murderers and betrayers, hypocrites, stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. Wow, those are incendiary remarks. You make such comments in Singapore today to some VIPs, you don't get a lawyer's letter for defamation. And only a truly faithful man would dare to speak like this and make a stand like this. Because that stand is a formula for death. And so it was. So it was. Acts chapter 7 verse 54 tells us that the Jews were so furious that they gnashed their teeth in anger. And Stephen was called upon to perform his final act of faithfulness. Faithful in his sacrifice. He was stoned. He was stoned to death. You know, the custom of stoning after a trial was, was quite brutal. This is how it happens. The witnesses would appear, testify against the accused. Then the accused was taken out of the council. And then he was brought to a place where he would be stoned. And this usually was a place that had a cliff or at least a, a pit, a large pit, hole in the ground. And about 15 feet from the pit, this, the accused would be asked if he would confess his crimes. And if he were to confess his crimes, he would be assured that he would have a place in the world to come. Then, as they came closer to the pit, the accused would be stripped of his clothes, and someone would push him down into the pit. He would be turned over so that his face was up, and then a large stone, a boulder, would be taken and dropped right over the man's heart. If he dies when the large boulder was dropped, then nothing else was done. But if he was still alive, albeit half crushed and bleeding profusely, then the whole congregation was required to stone him to death. And Stephen experienced, experienced such a stoning. But then an amazing thing happened. As they stoned him, Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 56 tells us that Stephen had a vision. A vision of the glory of God. He began his defense with a reference to the God of glory who appeared to Abraham. And now at the end of his defense, as he was being stoned to death, he looks up and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. You know, the, the figure, the vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God is, is very significant because the more common description in the New Testament is of Jesus sitting in heaven at the right hand of God, the Father. 
Why was Jesus standing instead of sitting? There are a few theories. One, Jesus was standing there in solidarity with Stephen at his moment of crisis. Two, Jesus was giving a standing ovation to Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. And three, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 32, that whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus may have also stood up to plead Stephen's cause or case before God the Father, assuring him that though he was found guilty by man and punished on earth, he was found righteous and will be rewarded in heaven. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason that the Son of Man was standing and not sitting, it was a magnificent moment of comfort for Stephen because in the midst of the most terrible suffering, he sees the glory of God and the Lord Jesus into whose hands he had committed himself standing at the right hand of God as if to welcome him home. You know, in Greek, there are two types of crowns. One is called diademos, which is a royal crown. You get the word diadem. Royalty wears these things, diadems. This type of crown can be passed on, inherited. The second word for a crown is stephanos which means victor's crown. And it is a crown that you have to earn, like when you win a race at the Olympic Games in those, day, in those days. And the name Stephen came from this word, Stephenos. So Stephen the martyr received his crown, not the diademos, but the Stephanos, the victor's crown. Even as he was being stoned to death, he was welcomed home by the Son of Man. You know, I said at the beginning that Stephen's life is a lesson in faithfulness. And to be faithful is to keep trust. It is to be constant and unwavering and to do what is right and true regardless of the results or the consequences. And we live from we learn from Stephen that to be faithful is to live in constant readiness to die for Christ. And this idea is not as morbid as it sounds because throughout the New Testament, there are many references to dying. Let me cite just three of them. John chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves his life will lose it, while anyone who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Galatians 2.20, the famous words of the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. 
for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, we are to be ready to die to self. Firstly, as recognition or as reckoning of our spiritual position in Christ or being crucified with Him or being dead to self and buried, symbolized in our baptism. And secondly, as a daily outworking of that death by our faith in our choices, in our speech, and in our actions. Not many of us will die for our faith. It is a privilege that is reserved for very few of God's precious saints. But then, the reality is that God does not call all of us to be martyrs. But He does call all of us, as Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 tells us, <clears throat> to be living sacrifices. I will never be ready to die for Jesus if we are not ready to live for Him. And in some respects, it is it may even be harder to live for Jesus than to die for Him. But if we are living for Him, we will be prepared to die for Him if that is what God calls us to do someday. And as I mentioned, this dying to self can come in a thousand different ways. When we drive our cars, how we interact with our colleagues, in our choice of words, what we click on our computers, how we empathize with others, how we seek to win the lost for Christ. Here is a picture of another martyr from modern times. <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You've heard me mention him several times in this pulpit. A German pastor and a theologian standing firm in his Christian convictions and who resisted Adolf Hitler and his mad, his mad genocidal tendencies. And in doing so, he paid the ultimate price when in 1945 he was hung at the gallows in a concentration camp in a place called Flossenburg in Germany. Guess what? He was only 39 years old, just a little older than Marilyn Monroe and Princess Diana when he died. And the only account of Bonhoeffer's execution was given by his prison doctor. And this is what we read. After the sentence had been read out to the condemned men, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer taking off his prison guard, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly seen a man so entirely submissive to the will of God. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35, we read these words. I don't have it on the slide, just listen. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And commenting on a reference to the cross in this passage, Bonhoeffer wrote in one of his books, The Cost of Discipleship. 
Sorry. I thought I didn't have it on the slide. I do. When a man, when, when Christ calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. May we, dear brothers and sisters, may we die daily to ourselves so that we may live daily for him. I want us to get ready for our closing song and invite the musicians to come forward. Last week, you remember Dr. Raj when he spoke in this pulpit, he commented that it's, it's almost impossible to sing a consecration song like this one. So, sorry. Lord, I offer my life to you. It's impossible. And I agree. Why? Because our conscience pricks us if we fail to live up to the words of that kind of a song. But this morning, we'll still sing a consecration song, Be Thou My Vision. A bit easier, huh? not so fierce, like this one. My only defense, my only apology I can make is that it's like that of a man who came to Jesus, desperate for the Lord to heal his demon-possessed son, to, him, whom, to whom Jesus said, everything is possible to him who believes. And the man cried out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So may God grant to us the same vision of His glory and His presence like what He gave to Stephen. And in so doing, may He also grant to us the strength to commit ourselves more fully to Him in life or in death. Let's stand.
to just take this time to pause and to reflect not so much on the message not so much on what I have said but on the Lord the God of glory we appear to Abraham and to Moses and to Joseph and to David and to Solomon this same God of glory was also the one who stood at the hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father, welcoming home his beloved servant Stephen the martyr. I'd like us all to let the quietness of our own hearts to just make a fresh prayer of commitment to him. whether it be life or be in death, we may remain true and faithful to this wonderful Saviour of ours who gave us His life and so much more. Lord Jesus, we want to thank You for the example of Stephen and not only of Stephen but of so many men and women of God down through the ages who have shown us what it is to be faithful. Lord, we ask that you will help us so that we might follow in that grand tradition. Give us the strength each day to live for you in the small things and in the big things. Help us to remain loyal to your calling in our lives. We commit the rest of this week into your hands. Praying all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Service is over, but if you feel that you want to come forward to be prayed for by the leaders, please do.